blessings of love and of fear God, I love my church, I don't even care who hears Don't even care who hears Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Every Little Voice, the podcast on community music brought to you by all of us at Community Music Schools of Toronto, which is expanding from the Regent Park School of Music. And we're delighted to present season four. Enjoy. And if your little voice and my little voice get together one we make a joyful noise and my I started piano lessons at four. It was tradition in my family. My older sister, a naturally musical and disciplined kid, was four years deep in her practice by the time I began. So for a long time, I didn't really question why I played piano, and neither did my little sister when she began after me. I practiced regularly until I was 17 and ready to leave Toronto for university. Up to that point, I was an absolute perfectionist. I practiced my instruments for my Royal Conservatory exams, I studied hard for my IB exams, and I captained three high school sports teams. Musicality, high grades, and athleticism. These were the things that made my family proud. Everyone hoped they were going to get me into university on a scholarship, and they did. I was bound to flop really hard eventually. I was totally overwhelmed in first year. Mom would call and ask if I'd been practicing cello and I'd think about how that is so low on my priority list. And anyways, there aren't any more RCM exams for me to do. I'm a science major. Can you imagine? 13 years of musical practice just to find that my relationship to music was overwhelmingly defined by duty as opposed to joy. My cello collected dust because I didn't want to warm up with scales and lie to myself that I should audition for the school orchestra. I often felt guilty that I wasn't improving my technical skills, that I wasn't grinding through box six cello suites. It became clear that there was a lot of room for growth in my relationship to music. There's a lot of complex reasons for this. Many are deeply personal, but they also interact with societal influences that led to the internalization of some dissonant value of good musicianship. One such societal influence is Eurocentrism. I sat down with music educator and ethnomusicologist Parmela Atarawala to unpack some observations on my relationship to art and Eurocentrism. Oh gosh, that's a huge question. But Eurocentrism is very much a certain set of standards that has its origin in the European continent and that continues to hold sway over the way that we model our lives. So there are a lot of elements in there. We can talk about politics. We can talk about, you know, like our political systems, the concept of ownership of even property. I'm sitting here in Vancouver and, you know, I'm speaking to you, I can say Vancouver, but really I'm on Musqueam territory. And yet the Musqueam and the Indigenous peoples didn't have that same concept of ownership. So even the concept of ownership and capitalism and liberal democracy, this whole series of ideas that originated in European thinking. So that's really Eurocentrism. Not that it's all bad, like the concept of liberal democracy itself, 
that ultimately has brought us to this point where we're talking about equity and equality of each individual, regardless of gender, regardless of place of origin, regardless of ability or disability or any of those things. I mean, that's that's also part of a Eurocentric philosophy, which I think is a good thing. Eurocentrism, something that made the cello available for me to love, but at the same time constrained my expression and imagination of that love. Here's Parmela's breakdown on how Eurocentrism influences how we imagine and practice music in Canada. So the geographic territory of Canada, the political geographic territory of Canada, has very much been, we will know, Canada has been a European colony, a British colony. And so the structures, political structures, the ideology, and the culture, culture and like big concept of culture, has been influenced by Britain, by Europe, and by the values of how, especially British, so not only England, but Scotland, Wales, Ireland, that whole, the UK, how they have wanted to represent themselves culturally. Culture is a really problematic work. It's something that I that I spent a whole chapter on in my PhD discussing the, the problematics of the word culture because we tend to confuse it with the word art, which is not completely accurate because culture is really everything that we do. But yeah, so the various elements that, let's say we talk about artistic culture then, enough in musicology, we call it expressive culture. So let me just get rid of <laughs> the word art altogether. So expressive culture, which is the way that we express ourselves and try and portray who we are as a culture have been the Eurocentric ways of expressing what we value, what we believe. Now, as our culture and the population of Canada has changed, it doesn't make sense anymore. And also, as we've expanded this concept of liberal democracy, so that it's really about equity and equality of all, it continues to make even less sense to be persisting with this Eurocentric way of of expressing our culture. So the school is in the process of redesigning the curriculum to kind of account for some of what we're talking about here. Well, I was just going to make a comment about the concept of exams, because again, it's something nobody's really thought about it. It's just been the way things have taken place over the last probably about a century, I I believe, when the conservatory system came to Toronto first. Maybe, maybe it's a little bit less than a century, but, you know, it's also the, just the way that we're educated. This Western way of educating is about exams. And so that's how we mark progress and learning is through having the exams. And then the music that we play for the exams, so it's, a, you know, from that Western classical canon. And that's really where the crux of where the problem that we've noticed lies. How do we change it? I was only forced to interrogate my relationship to music when it was no longer serving me. A closer look at my motivations and priorities revealed areas for growth. In 2020, similar reflections were happening at the community music schools of Toronto. The pandemic thrust us into unfamiliar circumstances. We experienced isolation, uncertainty, fear, and disbelief at a collective level. In addition, The George Floyd protests heightened global awareness of the other invisible forces that push our communities apart. How might a community music school be influenced by societal notions of racism? How can music schools hold themselves accountable to the marginalized individuals, families, and communities they represent? What can a community music school do to support school-aged youth impacted by a global pandemic and a discriminatory social landscape? 
One place to start is to revisit questions of why and how. The way we conceptualize music, and therefore music education, is informed by so many things. In 2021, Parmala Atarwala led the development of a revised curriculum for the Community Music Schools of Toronto, titled Nurturing the Musicking Spirit. Here's Parmala's definition of musicking. Musicking is about everything that has to do with music. It's not about necessarily a final product. I mean, musicking is a verb. It's the doing. It's the playing of music, the listening to music, the understanding music, analyzing music. Like the word music is a noun, and so it's a product. And I think we've tended to think of the end goal, like being able to play a piece or being able to get to that end, whereas musicking is infinite. It's just about reorienting ourselves around the concept and in the way that humans like to need to, I think, express themselves by organizing sound. So that's that's where musicking comes from. And it was the word comes from Christopher Small, who wrote a book called Musicking. So I I like it as a much more encompassing way of thinking about what we've called music. So it's not limited to recreating, but it's also about creating and then thinking about it, all those things. There's a very famous musicologist called Christopher Small who basically says, you know, music is a relational art and music never exists on its own. That's Vina John, professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Music and member of the Community Music School of Toronto's Board of Directors. You're always making music with somebody or someone has composed that music. Someone has recorded that music. Music is something that makes us human and it's essential to the human relationship is music. And that was probably one of the most amazing realizations I ever came upon. And that really propelled my work going forward. Musicking. It was a new word to me, but a very familiar concept. A music education generates a lot of complicated feelings. In the tough times, pressure, boredom, frustration. But in the best times, unity, excitement, and groove. Here's what Bina has to say about the emotional impact of musicking. Many psychologists believe that emotional understanding precedes cognitive understanding, that we measure things or we understand things emotionally before we understand things intellectually. Here's Parmela describing her approach to developing the revised musicking curriculum. What I chose to emphasize was the social aspects of, you know, the social curriculum that RPSM came out with in, in, I think it was March of 2021. And I looked at what those priorities were, and it was much more about the spirit of the individual and how can we be healing to the spirit of the child? How can we make sure that, you know, emotionally, mentally, culturally, socially, we're really doing something to nourish the child? And that was why I chose Musicking, to really let us think about what does music do to us? How can it help us? How can it be that place where we express all of those things, whether it's our ethnocultural background, whether it's the angst that we're going through as we go through puberty, whether it's jumping up and down, or whether it's just playing our instrument when we're feeling rotten or when we're feeling great, or whether we want to hang out with our friends and make music, all of those things that music does to us. So yeah, that's a very long answer (laughs) to the question, but I think this will put RPSM at the head of the curve. You may have just heard us talk about Regent Park School of Music, or RPSM. Since the time of recording, we've changed over to our new identity as Community Music Schools of Toronto. This new name acts as an umbrella, 
better connecting and reflecting all of our sites, celebrating our history in Regent Park and Jane and Finch, and looking to reach even more communities in the future. Musicking. It's a verb, an expression of self, and a lived experience. Parmela's explanation reminded me of the times I hold close to my heart, playing the right hand to a video game theme song while my big sister played the left hand, marching at Caravana for the first time with a fellow graduate, and extending the karaoke room rental hour after hour after hour. I think it can be tough to negotiate one's relationship to music when it lies at some intersection of expression and commodification. Furthermore, the way some forms of expression and some commodifications are privileged over others makes it really messy. This musicking educational approach we're talking about centers the humanity of the young learner. Thus, to meet the needs of students of diverse backgrounds, abilities, and experiences, it's critical for the framework to be mindful of societal dynamics of power and depression. Here's what Bina John has to say on the matter. I love Pamela Adderwalla's definition of anti-racism as being not centering one music or another. In other words, every music is equal, whether it's Ghanaian drumming, South Indian Carnatic singing, or Baroque music, they are all equally as important. And I don't think we've really embraced that. And a lot of the curricula at the Faculty of Music is Western art orientated, and that trickles down to the schools where, you know, the, the curricula is all about Western art and the feeling that Western art somehow is dominant over other arts, and that is just a product of colonization. So we really need to turn that around. And Pamela Adderwalla talks about, and I love her definition of anti-oppression, you know, it's brilliant. Centering a student's well-being is being anti-oppressive. Centering a student's well-being, giving students agency and voice, and inspiring students to make music. That's anti-oppression. That's how we can overcome these barriers. And there's another theory, culturally relevant pedagogy, where whatever you teach, it has to be meaningful to the students in your class. So what is the musics that are important to the students in your class? What are the cultures of the students in your class? And it's really important that they see themselves. They see themselves represented in what you teach. If you teach purely Western art and 99% of your children are racialized or marginalized, it doesn't make any sense. But if you were to you know, really understand the cultures of the children that you're teaching and you incorporate that into your curriculum, then it becomes meaningful then it becomes anti-oppressive. So I think the core is who is in your class? What are their identities? Do they see themselves reflected in the music that you teach? If not, we have a problem. And that was my problem indeed. If I trace my critiques of my music education to one singular regret, it was the amount of time it took to grant myself permission to play music in a way that fed my spirit. I approached music with a perfectionism that was informed by financial stress in my family and the need to stomp out stereotypes or biases that underestimated my potential or assumed my character. And so for too long, I relied on external validation to justify playing music. It's how I asked and expected to be led through my music education. But what I'm trying to say is that playing music with the motivation to prove others wrong because of racism, or so that you can attend higher education so your family won't be poor anymore, is an approach informed by trauma. 
So for me and my cello, healing began in 12th grade. In partnership with a number of musicians from Arts and Crafts Productions, a group of us Regent Park students were to perform on stage at the Luminato Festival. I felt excited to play music on my cello that reflected the music I listened to. My parts weren't challenging, but that helped me feel relaxed in rehearsals and on stage. Even when I wasn't playing, I just felt comforted by the creative energy in the room. Playing collaboratively with others taught me to chase new feelings when playing the cello. It took me a couple years to find my footing in university, but once I did, my cello and I followed relaxing opportunities to play with others. That led to a lot of proud moments in musical theater, at the Poetry Slam, and as a residence Don, just jamming through the hard times with my students. Healing, forgiving, and playful. These are the shapes of my musicking spirit. Thank you for listening to Every Little Voice Season 4. Find us wherever you get your podcasts and please go to www.communitymusic.org to learn more about our organization. I'd like to thank our interviewees, starting with Tomas Muir, also Drs. Sarah Bay Chang, Bina John, and Parmala Atariwala. We couldn't do this amazing season without our co-producers. That's Danielle Muir and Evan Desonier. Thank you so much for all your hard work. All the music that you're hearing this episode is performed by students from the Community Music Schools of Toronto in collaboration with our friends at the Kingsway Music Library. Tune in next month for the next installment of Season 4 of Every Little Voice. Thank you for listening.